0: ...or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers, as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders... Who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. For over 100 years, the U.S. Government Accountability Office, GAO, has sought to help Congress improve the performance of government, ensure transparency, and save federal funds. Today, GAO's work spans all federal programs and spending from agriculture to space programs, banking regulations to public health, and cybersecurity to international aid. It also does financial audits of the U.S. government and assessments of its fiscal outlook. It continues to evolve from establishing its science and technology work to growing its cybersecurity expertise to developing quick read products. GAO seeks to anticipate and respond to changing congressional needs and emerging issues challenges, and opportunities, laying the foundation for the next 100 years? How has the mission of GAO evolved? How is GAO innovating the way it conducts its oversight mission? And what does the future hold for the U.S. Government Accountability Office? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Comptroller General Gene Dodaro, leader of the Government Accountability Office. Gene, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, Michael. So, you know, 2021 marked the 100th anniversary of the founding of the U.S. Government Accountability Office, GAO. In that time, what role has GAO played in helping to improve the performance and ensure the accountability of the federal government? And how has its role in government evolved? And I'd like to know, in what fundamental ways do you carry out your mission?
1: Yes, uh, our 100-year anniversary of GAO was marked by continual evolution of GAO's roles and responsibilities to meet the needs of the Congress and the country. You know, initially, Michael, we were created in 1921 following World War I because Congress had been worried about the debt that had been accumulated. And at that time, there was no formal budget process uh, in the federal government. Congress acted when they needed to. And so this required this 1921 law required uh, the president to submit a budget to the Congress. It actually created the Bureau of the Budget, which is now known as the Office of OMB in the uh, Office Executive Office of the President. Uh, and then also created GAO in the legislative branch to be a check and balance. And so at the beginning, our job was to audit the payments of the federal government, and to make sure the federal government's finances were handled in a proper manner. Now, as government grew over the years, particularly during the Depression and World War II, then the Great Society programs and the War on Poverty, and the federal government expanded, so did J.O.'s role, but it also marked a uh, shift from not only doing... Financial management reviews, but also from doing performance auditing in the government, which uh, makes sure that federal programs and operations are operating as efficiently and effectively as possible. They're meeting their objectives as envisioned by the Congress and statutes, and that they're properly serving the American public. And so, right now, uh, GAO is a very multidisciplinary organization. While we started out and have our roots in financial management, and we still audit the consolidated statements of the federal government and all review all the financial statements of all major departments and agencies, that's only about 10% of what we do. Uh, 90% are these performance audits whereby we look at and evaluate federal government operations across the full breadth and scope of the federal government's operations. And so these reviews lead to efforts to help ensure the accountability of the federal government and enhance its performance uh, for the benefit of the American people. And they also provide Congress with important information to carry out their uh, constitutional responsibility. So, you know, we're a full service organization now. We have, uh, you know, all kinds of skills, there's virtually no part of the federal government that we can't review you know, based upon the capabilities of our organization and our multidisciplinary staff. And so I'm very proud of the organization. We're continuing to evolve. You know I've created a science and technology function. We've picked up the responsibilities of the former Office of Technology Assessment uh, and doing technology assessments of of major uh, activities. And uh, really, continuing to expand and grow and, and meet the needs of the of the Congress and the country as they as they evolve.
0: You know, Gene, that's a great setup for my next question because you you kind of gave me a, a, a tease into that. I was wondering how is GAO organized, and and you can just give us a high level uh, way it's organized, and and, and then could you give us a sense of of the budget and staffing? Sure. Because we assemble
1: multidisciplinary teams, Michael, we're organized along that way, and our organization actually follows the strategic objectives of our uh, plan, of our strategic plan. So we created a plan of what, what do we need to do to serve the Congress, and then how do we organize to accomplish that? And so we have subject area teams that are filled with experts in healthcare, defense, energy, transportation, natural resources, et cetera. So we're organizing subject areas that cover the entire breadth and scope of the federal government's responsibilities. But then we have technical teams as well, science technology assessments and analytics team, a financial management assurance team, information technology and cybersecurity, a contracting team that looks at national security and contracting issues across government. And we have an applied research and methods team. And this team provides expert help on, as a center for economics, one on data analytics and statistics, you know, it's, and, and so it, and survey design and, and help, helps us, you know, with all sorts of expertise and program evaluation and, and methodologies. And so every project we do, close to 700 projects a year in GAO, Uh, each team has a unique multidisciplinary uh, unit that's put together to carry out the responsibilities of those particular engagements that we have been asked to look at, we want to look at on our own, or they're envisioned in our strategic plan. And that multidisciplinary team pulls from this organizational structure. So it's very, it's a flat organizational structure. Uh, It's very flexible and can accommodate when we, even when we have emergencies like uh, currently the COVID 19 responsibilities, we pull the experts we need to take on those projects. Our budget is uh, a little over 700. Million dollars. We have 3,400 people right now at, at the GAO. Uh, and uh, we have every type of expertise that you can imagine. You know, from and we have a big legal team in GAO as well. I should have mentioned them in our organizational structure. And of course, we have a great administrative support operation in GAO that keeps us running and has been tremendous, uh, particularly during the pandemic, of allowing us to work remotely. Uh, pretty much 100% except for classified work.
0: I was wondering about your role as Controller General. Can you tell us a little bit about the duties associated with that role? And what attracted you, Gene, to this particular leadership position?
1: Yes. Well, the role of the Controller General, like lots of heads of agencies, is a is a multifaceted one of my most important responsibilities is to make sure that we're supporting the Congress and carrying out their constitutional responsibilities and to en- enhance the performance and accountability of the government for the benefit of the American people. I also give a high priority to maintaining effective relationships with the executive branch, departments, and agencies. The Comptroller General also has some unique responsibilities to set Generally accepted government auditing standards. Now, these standards are set by the controller general, and I use it in an advisory group of people from the private sector, state, local governments, the federal IG community, and other experts to help me do this. But these generally accepted auditing standards must be followed by anybody auditing federal funds, whether it's a state auditor or an independent public accountant, they have to follow these standards. The Comptroller General also has responsibility for setting internal control standards uh, for the federal government. And those standards are set again with an advisory body in cooperation with OMB and then they're adopted in OMB A-123 to be used by the executive branch in carrying out their internal controls. And so that's a very important responsibility as well. And uh, I'm the chief spokesperson the GAO, and so I, uh, I enjoyed testifying before the Congress and, and doing media interviews like this one uh, when appropriate. And lastly, Michael, one, one role that people don't probably know uh, as much as we uh, focus on this issue, it's in the international arena. There's an organization of international national audit offices.
0: Uh, It's a tremendous responsibility. And and Gene, when you mentioned, uh, gave us a wonderful overview of the operations that you did, the the breadth and depth. I I was just, with such a portfolio, what are the top management challenges you face in your leadership role as Comptroller General? And how have you sought to address those challenges?
1: Yeah, well, there's a couple. Uh, I would say risk management is, is very important. You know, I've set up a process, Michael, whereby, you know, I will know every audit engagement that we're going to start I weigh in and we establish a risk level for that audit engagement, high, medium, or low, based upon the uh, controversy of the subject, the complexity of the methodology, and the anticipated cost of that project. Now, everything follows our generally accepted auditing standards, and we have a quality assurance process so that we can, on a regular basis, on a repeatable basis, produce high quality uh, products for all 700 or so products we issue every year. So we have that same process, but if depending upon the risk level, that decides who, who will review the report, part of our review operation. Uh, so risk management is a big part of the challenge in operating an organization like GAO, because we are decentralized the responsibilities to these teams that I talked to you about earlier. And most of them then sign the reports and testify before Congress. And so we delegate a lot of responsibilities, but you manage it. As a, at an organizational level, myself, along with our chief operating officer, Oris Williams-Brown, right now, and our general counsel, Etta Emanuele Perez, and then Carl has our chief administrative officer to help make sure we have all the tools that we need to carry out our responsibilities. Now, another challenge in this day and age is, is making sure we have the right resources to carry out our responsibilities. So that involves making a good case before the appropriations committees for them to support you and your organization. You know, I've met trying to meet that challenge by demonstrate the results and the return on investment people get from GAO last five years we've returned 158 dollars for every dollar spent on GAO in addition to all the information we provide to help congress make informed decisions and another challenge uh, has been you know making sure that you have good succession planning To make sure that you meet, particularly as we're in the midst of the baby boom generation, a lot of people are retiring. You want to make sure you have that next generation of workers and future generations lined up to make sure your organization is vibrant. It can continue to function properly.
0: Gene, given your experience there and, and, and your tenure, could you describe for us your leadership approach and perhaps you can outline some of the principles you follow? Yeah, sure.
1: Well, I, first and foremost, you know, I, I try to lead by example, you know, I, everybody as a leader has unique responsibilities depending on their organization. And in GAO, you know, I lead a group of 3,000, 3,400 trained critics that we turn loose critiquing the rest of our governments. They're critiquing me all the time and uh, our top leadership team. And I use that to our advantage by listening uh, to our employees, engaging our employees, getting their ideas. I meet on a regular basis with our union, various employee groups and others. You know, we employ a lot of very talented, smart people. So I try to use that to our advantage in, in managing the organization and leading these people. And, you know, so I want to provide you know, good communication is imperative. You know, people, if they believe that you've got a good reason for what you're doing, you got a good vision for where you want to take the organization, you have a plan to get there, you give them the uh, opportunities, you give them the tools to be successful. is very important. Uh, one of the priorities that I've had as Comptroller General, we've GAO, we've always had a commitment to the quality of our products and our core values of accountability, integrity, and reliability. But I felt we needed core values on the people side too, so that people know we're as concerned about them as we are about our products that we issue to the Congress. So we created values on the people side to make sure everybody feels valued, respected, and treated fairly. So these are become integral to our core set of values in addition to the accountability, integrity, and reliability. And it's resonated with people. I mean, people need to know that they're going to be listened to, they're going to be respected, that you're concerned about their professional development, their career, you're concerned about helping them have good, effective work-life balance and manage all the complexities in their personal lives as well as having our a rich and rewarding uh, professional career at the GAO. So you know, I enjoy so much working with people, and the GAO people are a special group, and uh, I'm very proud of
0: the organization. What are the key strategic priorities for the U.S. Government Accountability Office, GAO? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Comptroller General Gene Dodaro, leader of the Government Accountability Office, GAO. Gene, it's important you've pointed out in our earlier part of the conversation, it's important for GAO to anticipate trends and challenges shaping the environment in which government as a whole operates. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of the strategic planning process you initiate at GAO. How has it evolved over time? And and maybe this is a good time to really highlight some of your key priorities. Sure. Uh, The uh, process, strategic planning process, has evolved
1: uh, greatly uh, since the time I joined GAO. When I first joined GAO, we had a very good strategic planning process. And it was focused, though, on individual areas. Like we had a plan for transportation, we had one for health care, we had one, et cetera, across the federal government. There were like 37 or so strategic plans for each issue area in GAO. But we really didn't have a GAO-wide integrated strategic plan until uh, around 2000. Dave Walker came in as Comptroller General, then asked me to be his Chief Operating Officer. and We created a whole new strategic planning approach uh, for GAO. Dave was great to work with. We developed and we reorganized GAO along the lines of this organizational framework I talked about earlier. and Then we created a strategic plan Uh, and that planning activities I've continued to build on and refine over the years. But part of it is identifying what are the trends in the environment that are going to shape decisions for the Congress going forward in the country. So we look out the plan, follows the model on the Government Performance and Results Act planning process for the executive branch. We're not bound by that, but we do it in spirit. And so we identify what these evolving trends are in the environment that helps us look out several years into the future, not only current challenges, but emerging challenges and have some foresight built into our strategic planning process. And so we're about ready to be issue our next strategic plan or updated plan for 2022 to 2027. And we've gone through a process. So we The process starts with the Congress and ends with the Congress because the plan is to serve the Congress and the country. And we get input from the Congress. We get input from a wide range of external sources. Not a plan at GAO is a living document because we update it on an as-needed basis. We've been uh, ranked in the best places to work by the Partnership for Public Service, Uh, in the top five since uh, 2005. Last year, we were ranked number one in in, uh, mid-sized agencies. Now, in terms of other priorities on issues, the uh, COVID-19 relief that the federal government's provided has been a a very high priority uh, for us. Uh, You know, you've had, you know, over $4.5 trillion expended. GAO was had was asked to carry out some unique responsibilities in that. We've been engaged in real-time auditing there. And so that's top priority. Our high-risk list that we keep, are the greatest risk that we think cross-government is always one of our top priorities. We just updated that about a year ago, so we're in, in midpoint of the cycle where we updated every two years with the beginning of each new Congress, so that's a priority identify an overlap duplication in the federal government's priority. And I also you know, keep Congress informed of our views on the fiscal outlook for the federal government's financial position. Uh, certainly it's uh, changed here dramatically with the, with the federal
0: response. So, Gene, how does the, because I know you you folks have put a lot of effort in this area in terms of anticipating, uh, you know, challenges or emerging trends and opportunities. How has the discipline of strategic foresight factored into your either strategic planning efforts or your mission? And and what is the the role of GAO's Strategic Foresight Center? What does it play in that area?
1: Yes, we created this Strategic Foresight Center in 2018 as part of our continual efforts that I mentioned earlier to improve and refine our strategic planning process at the GAO. We have uh, about eight fellows that are in there now. So it's it's an add a new dimension. Now we have had futures on our uh, control general advisory group for a while now and they've been very helpful but this was the, the add to those capabilities and responsibilities. So they've looked at things like deep fakes, trends in space, which are are very important issues. And so they provide those insights to us. I also have them help on individual uh, audits that we undertake where we've been asked to look at uh, future trends and technologies and other issues. To give you an example of how this group functions on an ongoing basis, uh, we had them work together with our science, technology, and analytics team to create a framework for evaluating uh, artificial intelligence algorithms. Because the, what what GAO works on in the future and how we do our work has been changing dramatically based upon rapidly evolving science and technology developments. And so we need to change, it. and we have been changing, you know, for the last decade to build this capabilities. And so I was very pleased to see where the center is now partnering with different teams in GAO to create documents so that we can then use this artificial intelligence framework to evaluate how federal agencies are developing and using artificial intelligence in their operations uh, sort of the Congress. And it also helped us to look internally and uh, part of their advice over the, the past uh, several years since we created them was to create a much more mobile workforce, for example. And so that helped us be even better positioned when the pandemic hit and we had to move to uh, you know, virtually 100% remote work. So it's, it's great to have that capability, to have people think ahead. You know, I've been trying mightily, working with all my great colleagues over the years at GAO to move GAO from uh, an image where all we did was identify deficiencies to bring constructive suggestions to improve operations and then to look at foresight activities. And Dave Walker was very helpful in that direction as well over the years. And even Chuck Bajer uh, before Dave, we all, all the controller generals always tried to look ahead, but we've been refining and, our approaches uh, going forward. And it's made GAO, you know, a much more proactive organization and therefore a greater asset to the country.
0: Well, Gene, you kind of teed up two of my next questions and I'll I'll take them in order, but you mentioned the pandemic and the response to the pandemic, you know, Congress appropriated 4.6 trillion in emergency assistance. Um, Can you tell us about GAO's ongoing you know reviews of the federal response maybe some of the recommendations it's made but but more importantly Gene how has whether it's uh, you know the, the covid-19 crisis or the global financial crisis how has GAO been able to position itself to do what is in essence real-time auditing um so I'm wondering uh, what are you doing in, in this area of covid-19 uh, maybe some of the recommendations and and how has it shifted the way you audit yes
1: Well, COVID-19, our responsibilities under the March 2020 uh, CARES Act, which began the large amounts of federal assistance, was to evaluate how well that assistance was uh, doing in addressing public health issues and the economic repercussions of COVID-19 response on the economy and public and private sector institutions. And we were also asked to give monthly briefings to a set of congressional committees uh, and to issue bimonthly reports. So that thrusts you, as you say, right into the uh, real-time auditing in order to meet those re- uh, requests uh, from the Congress. So we immediately formed teams in GAO. Uh, we were aided a bit by Uh, some additional money that had been appropriated to us. So we redeployed our existing staff immediately, but then we were able to eventually backfill some of them to carry out our normal responsibilities as well. Now, we've issued our ninth government-wide report where we, we say how all the various parts of our government have dealt with the assistance, what the status of that assistance is, Uh, And that's been a a very significant effort. We have enclosures that talk about each of these individual areas uh, going forward. We've also issued a number of reports, Michael made dozens of reports on individual areas, such as vaccine development uh, area. We've made over 246 recommendations so far. And I'm very pleased that we were able to make some. Now, some of what we've recommended, for example, in the public health setting has dealt with, you know, made a recommendation back in September 2020 that the government develop a vaccine distribution communication plan. Unfortunately, that wasn't uh, heated uh, right away. And eventually, though, we've been working on it as a government. and and getting a little bit better, but I I would have preferred that we started earlier in the process. Also, to develop a uh, supply chain strategy uh, for medical supplies for the future, we recommended that FDA, in issuing their emergency use authorizations, provide more information uh, about the science underlying the information, so there's more transparency and accountability, of some of the therapeutics that were were done. We've looked at, did it with our scientists, a a, uh, technology maturity assessment of the vaccine development areas and and, and found that it's it's all good practices in in that arena. Our most recent report uh, that we just issued at the end of January, we also had decided to add HHS's leadership for public health emergencies, not just for pandemics, but natural disasters and other potential, you know, man-made emergencies to our high-risk list. And uh, we did that because there needs to be greater clarity on roles and responsibilities among federal, state, local governments, private sector, nonprofit sector, and responding to emergencies. We need better communication, Strategies that are clear and consistent and compelling. Uh, We need better data that's collected. Um, We're supposed to have a national surveillance system that was called for back in 2008. That's not yet been put in place, you know, effectively. And we also need to know the limitations of some of our non-federal partners so that we can have contingency plans in place. We've made recommendations on the stockpile, for example and how that needs to have a better process to accumulate uh, the national stockpile and advise others on what they need to do to prepare as well. On the transparency and accountability front, we've had a number of recommendations there too. Unfortunately, there was more fraud in this area than anybody really wanted, both in the unemployment insurance area, Paycheck Protection Program, the Economic Disaster Injury Loan Program, so we made a lot of recommendations. there, working with the IG community. I'm, I'm pleased to, you know, the IG's responded very well at doing a lot of work in this area. So we worked to coordinate with them to leverage our respective uh, advantages going forward and effective use of our resources. We added the emergency loan programs at SBA to our high risk list too as well. I was uh, a little disappointed they didn't move as quickly to make mid-course corrections. You know, the, the government did a good job of getting the money out fast. I mean, speed won out, uh, and, and it, it needed to get out early, so I'm not, uh, you know, lamenting that at all, uh, but uh, we quickly should have put in place more mid-course corrections, uh, monitoring, post-payment reviews, uh, and what better accountability mechanisms to counter things. There was there was probably too much use of self-certification for organizations, people to get benefits under the programs, and there wasn't enough checking. Checking and checking. could have happened a little bit beforehand, but it could also have been done post-payment and quick enough to,
0: to determine whether or not there have been activities. Excellent uh, recommendations, especially the last point you made. You know, Gene, you've mentioned a couple of times the science, technology, analytics team. And, and I'm interested if you could tell us a little bit more about the critical areas they're focusing on and, and how the uh, GAO's innovation lab factors into this effort. And and how are you, besides looking outward and helping Congress and the executive branch, how is the work that you're doing in this area helping GAO position itself for the future as well?
1: Sure. Well, I, I've been long interested in building our capabilities in the science and technology area. Now, earlier in my career at GAO, I was in charge of not only our accounting function, but our information technology functions in GAO. And I started our early work in the government and cybersecurity area, for example, in preparing for Y2K. But as, as the science and technology has been evolving so rapidly, it's become imbued In many of the activities that we evaluate across government, for example, now we're evaluating the development of the new nuclear class submarines, the Columbia class, for example. We've long looked at NASA programs, space programs, uh, weapon systems that have become more sophisticated. Environmental issues involve a lot of science and technology issues. Medical issues have been involved evolving fast in that area. So I I hired our first chief scientist when I was acting comptroller general back in 2008-9 timeframe, and uh, we've been building our capacity since then. By 2019, we created this new team, but we had been expanding all along, Michael. Uh, We had been asked also to take on some of the responsibilities as early as 2002 and demonstrating Our capabilities to do technology assessments, which look at existing uh, technologies, technologies that are under development and technologies that could be under development to address different policy issues going forward and to help Congress make decisions, not only in investment decisions, but also legal, ethical and policy issues associated with technology being implemented as a matter of public policy or as a matter of program execution. So we needed it to do both our normal work, where there were science and technology issues, but also to do these new technology assessments. Now that group is focused on doing both. We've greatly increased with the support of the Congress, our technology assessments. For example, we've done technology assessments of the use of artificial intelligence to expedite drug development, to make it faster, to use in medical applications, to use in, we're doing one now, looking at the use of artificial intelligence uh, for diagnostic purposes as well. Now, here we've partnered with the National Academy of Medicine to do these three different artificial intelligence reviews, but it's giving great insight We've done one on quantum communications, and we're doing another one now on quantum computing issues. We've done ones on small nuclear modular reactors that leave less of an environmental footprint, potentially. We've uh, done one on 5G, for example, with the implications uh, there as well. We've, We've done one on forensic algorithms in terms of use for DNA testing and other issues. And so you know, we've we've broadened out the scope. We're doing a lot more in those areas uh, as well. I mentioned the uh, inf- artificial intelligence accountability framework that we've developed earlier. Uh, we've done work uh, during the COVID issues quite a bit, uh, partnering between our healthcare team and the science, technology, and analytics team. We did reviews of infectious disease modeling. We looked at the vaccine development issues, as I talked about. We issued these series of reports now that we call science and technology spotlights, they're two-page explainers. We did one on vaccine development, for example, so people can understand you know, the science behind this in terms that they can relate to and absorb, as well as these more in-depth technical studies that we do going forward. We've expanded that group now. We're on target to double the size
0: of the group. to hit about 140 people. I ensure. How is GAO innovating the way it conducts its oversight mission? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How
2: does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
0: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Comptroller General Gene Dadaro, leader of the Government Accountability Office, GAO. So, Gene, I'd like to delve right into specifics. Central among the significant challenges we face is trying to uh, place our national government on a more sustainable long-term fiscal path. Could you elaborate on the challenges affecting the federal budget both near and long-term and provide us with an overview of the work GAO is doing in this area and any recommendations you'd like to offer.
1: Uh, Michael, I've long been concerned about the long-term fiscal outlook of the federal government. Now, most recently this uh, pandemic response was something that needed to be done to deal with the public health situation and the economic repercussions of the economy. Uh, But what I've recommended to the Congress is that once we have our public health goals met once the economy's on a stable, growing path. We need to quickly pivot our attention to dealing with the long-term fiscal outlook. Now, the fiscal year 2020, you know, debt held by the public reached about 100% of gross domestic product, which is up from 79% in 2019. And absent any action, you know, our long-term simulations – Debt held by the public is projected to surpass 200% of GDP by 2048. So when, you, when your debt is growing faster than your economy, that is what we call unsustainable over a long-term period of time. Now, whether it's the Treasury Department, or are be issuing the annual financial report of the federal government, which include long-term sustainability statements, or it's CBO or it's GAO, you know, while the numbers might differ slightly, uh, all three conclude that the government's on a long-term unsustainable fiscal path. Now, this is going to be complicated by some key decisions that are going to have to be made in relative short order about some of the more significant trust funds that we have. Medicare, for example, hospital and insurance trust funds projected to be depleted by 2026 and so the revenues there, which are from the payroll taxes, will be sufficient to pay only 87% of scheduled benefits in 2027. The Social Security Trust Fund is expected to be depleted in the 2033-34 timeframe, and they only have enough money to support about 75% of the benefits in there. So these... Uh, Issues are going to have to be dealt with in the context of a a growing federal debt. Now, what we've done to help Congress, because these are policy decisions to be made by elected officials, our job is to alert them to these potential risks uh, with the long term fiscal outlook. Uh, But we've developed uh, what we would recommend that would be key elements of the plan, which is to You know, have a plan that you can have a legal framework, so there would be a legal underpinning to the plan. You want to have, you know, emergency flexibility in case something comes up. You need to integrate it into your budget process. You need to have clear roles and a way to monitor the budget. And we've we've also recommended that Congress set some targets, for example, on debt to GDP. How much debt to GDP do we want to have? As a nation. Right now, there are no guardrails, there are no aspirations for what our fiscal situation should be in the future. And so we feel you need that. The other issue here is our debt grows, our interest rate exposure grows as well. And while interest rates have been low now, we've been able to borrow large amounts of money, low rates, that can change at any time, as you've seen most recently with inflation and Interest rates are going to go up uh, over a period of time. So that's going to increase our debt service uh, burden. And, uh, you know, we're estimating that, absent any major changes here, that interest was $345 billion in fiscal year 2020, and it's projected to exceed a trillion dollars by 2033. So this interest rate exposure is a, a, a big issue as well. So we need a plan to make sure that we can then deal with future emergencies and have flexibility. Now, we also, lastly, recommended that Congress change the approach to the current debt ceiling. Now, debt ceiling really hasn't done much in order to control the debt. All it does is set a limit on the money Treasury can borrow to finance the decisions that Congress has already made and the President signed in the law through their appropriation process. And because there's always the potential that the debt might not be raised in time, that ceiling, then uh, it makes the markets nervous, thereby uh, creating a more of a premium that they want to lend us the money going forward. So it increases interest costs, makes the markets uh, nervous, and doesn't do anything to control the debt. So we've recommended some alternatives that Congress could use to get that under better control going forward
0: as well. Gene, that's wonderful. Thanks. As you reflect on your tenure at GAO, whether as Comptroller General or prior to your appointment, what are some of your most important accomplishments? And and more importantly, Gene, how have they informed key legislative decisions or had legislative impact?
1: Well, there's a, a set of accomplishments I'm very uh, proud of that deal with uh, putting in place government-wide management reforms, Michael, that, that have uh, a lasting impact. Uh, I was very successful in getting the Chief Financial Officers Act, which originally was passed in, in 1990. Uh, but in that act, it had the pilots for financial audits across federal government. But in 1994, in the Government Management Reform Act, I was in charge of our accounting division. Uh, we worked with Congress and they made permanent annual financial requirements for every major department agencies in the federal government and have a a consolidated financial statements on the government's fiscal situation. During this first set of audits, which started in 1996, there were only 6 of the 24 top agencies that could get a clean audit opinion. Most recently, it's been 21 of 24, and it's typically been higher than that, but the, the pandemic created problems for SBA, for example. That act also created key leadership positions across the CFO community and working now to to try to push for some legislative refinements that could be made to the CFO Act. But fundamentally, that uh, implementation, that legislation has greatly improved the federal government's financial management practices, strengthened internal controls, and given us a, a much better handle on the government's uh, finances. Similarly, I worked with Congress uh, back in 1996 to, as they were crafting the and Cohen Act, which created chief information officers in the federal government and put in place better investment practices in the information technology area as well. So I, I was very uh, fortunate to work with them as that act was created and so both creating chief financial officers and chief information officers were fundamental to laying the groundwork for a good management structure to manage the federal government's money. And in this case, you know, $100 billion of investments in IT. Now, unfortunately, that act has still needed a lot of attention. It was uh, revised most recently in the Federal Information Technology Act, better known as FITARA, uh, to strengthen and give CIOs more authorities or make it clear that they were to meet all the authorities that were here, there, put in, in place more disciplined investment processes. But a lot of that was was initially contemplated by the '96 Act, but hasn't been successfully implemented. So this was giving it a little more legislative push in that arena. In the fraud area, we're able to developed more Congress with the legislation to pass the Fraud Reduction and Data Analytics Act of 2015, which got passed in 2016. This puts federal government in a better basis to proactively address preventing fraud in the first place. And so, you know, I was a little disappointed the act hadn't been implemented as much as I thought before the pandemic. And I think had it been, then the Fraud that we saw occurring could have been better minimized uh, during that period of time. I was also helped push for the Data Analytics Accountability and Transparency Act, the Data Act, and that for the first time set standards in a lot of different areas. Made information in USA Spending.gov more downloadable and uh, transparent to the American people and, and the information in there now has been getting better and more accurate and complete over time. There's still work to be done in that area as well. Work we've done in the improper payments area, I'm also very pleased about. And that problem began being discovered during the original financial audits, which is one of the benefits of the the program. And that led to legislation an uh, improper payments area series of legislation to deal with what's a large and growing problem, but it's only growing because it's made, been made more transparent. Now we have to deal with lowering the improper payments rate, which cumulative since 2003, since they've been required to be reported, have been a, a $2.2 trillion. So this is a very significant issue as well. I've been very pleased with the computer security issues, as I mentioned, and we've been focused on that since the 1990s. Actually, Michael, I designated that a high-risk area across the entire federal government in 1997, and Critical Infrastructure Protection 2003. So that's created a lot of of uh, of legislation, and uh, you know, and. Unfortunately, we still have a lot of work to do in the computer security area as well. I'm also very uh, proud of uh, creating real-time auditing capabilities in GAO. You know, when I became acting Controller general in 2008, it was right in the beginning of the global financial crisis. So GAO had a role in the $700 billion legislation that was intended to stabilize our financial institutions and markets and free up credit there we had to report every 60 days we had to be on site at treasury the day the law was signed and i think we did a very good job in helping ensure that that the federal government's investment in that area was as best protected as possible a lot of money went to the banks came uh, was returned Uh, it helped the automakers and while we didn't get everything back there that we lent them. It did stabilize the economy and prevent much higher unemployment rates and cascading effects on on a number of people and sectors in the economy. Uh, And then during the Great Recession, during the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, we were asked to look at the use of the money by state and local governments. That was about $800 billion package, which we didn't report every two months. So this this has added a huge dimension to GAO's capabilities in the uh, doing real-time auditing where Congress could not only rely on us to look at things that happened, figure out what went wrong uh, in a more traditional auditing fashion, um, but we can look at ongoing activities and give them real-time glimpses of what's going on and suggestions and recommendations, not just reporting what's going on, but saying, here's how it could change, how you can improve it, and also dealing with these foresight activities that we talked about earlier.
0: Yeah, Gene, it's a tremendous amount of, uh, of work that you have uh, a testament to your time at uh, GAO. But as you reflect on the coming to the end of your tenure, perhaps you can share with us what would you like to accomplish in order to position GAO uh, for a better future? Uh,
1: the priorities that I outlined in my confirmation hearing are what I'd like to to fully realize. Number one was making sure JO is always working on the most important national issues. Uh, this is essential uh, for us to meet our mission and to be of highest value to Congress and the American people. And the strategic planning goals of strategic foresight center, our process, our involvement, relationship building, both in the Congress and the executive agencies to get our uh, plan not only executed, but improvements made to the federal government's essential to that, Michael. So, you know, right issues, you, you maximize your impact. And so that's very important. It's sort of number one. Number two is I'd like to get as many high-risk areas not only identified, but off the list. Um, you know, we've had about 40% of the high-risk areas that we've put on the list taken off. And there's been some, uh, you know, you know, notable accomplishments of that. For example, we've avoided having gaps in our coverage for our weather satellites. We have good weather forecasting capabilities, which is pivotal now, since we're having much more frequent and extreme weather events that, that helps save life and property. Uh, another uh, example was uh, improving the sharing of terrorist-related information among the intelligence communities. Uh, We're in much better shape now than we were before 9-11. That was on the high-risk list and was removed as an example. So there are many more areas on there, and it's 37 now in total. So that's a big priority for me. You know, the high-risk area has been one of the longest good government, bipartisan-supported efforts in in our country's history. You know, it's been going on since 1990, and it, it receives a lot of strong bipartisan support. And many administrations have used parts of it to build the president's management agenda. Uh, third is try to get the government on a, on a plan that will long-term sus- deal with the long-term uh, sustainability issues of our fiscal uh, challenges. Uh, fourth is to continue to build our capabilities in the Science, Technology, and Analytics Act. While we've made a lot of progress, I want to continue that progress, build more toward the future, And be in a position to provide more technical assistance across the Congress to deal with these science and technology uh, areas that are in place. And then lastly, uh, to leave a strong GAO, to leave an organization in place that has the right people, we've got the right plans, the right people, the right values, the right commitments to continue to succeed in the future. Without reliance on any one individual, we we have a strong organization. I want to leave a strong organization. I believe I'll leave it in a good position. But that's one of my my critical goals there to ensure that GAO has enduring
0: value to the country. Gene, one last question before before I, before you go. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service?
1: Two words: Do it. You'll never regret it. Uh, it's a noble profession. Uh, I came into public service because I didn't want to be somebody who just complained about government without getting in the game and doing something about it. You know, GAO has been a tremendous platform to do that and to to ha- impact government, impact uh, the services that affect Americans on a regular recurring basis, uh, and uh, to help, you know, enrich the lives of, of our people and our citizens. We have tremendous uh, challenges, domestic and international. We need people of high caliber to come in the government, to commit themselves, to help make improvements. Uh, it's vital to everybody's family. Uh, you know, one of the reasons I took the controller general job was at that time I had, you know, one grandson. And I have eight grandchildren. Um, But to me, that's one of the reasons I'm I'm in this job is to make life better for them, my children and my grandchildren and then successive generations. Unless we commit ourselves to have, you know, high caliber people in public service, you're you're not going to have the type of society uh, and the standard of living that we all aspire to. Uh, And so it's very important. So I encourage people... At some point in their careers, I mean, whether they come in directly in the federal government or they come in after they've retired from a successful career in the private sector, or anywhere in between, uh, the, they'll find it one of the most interesting and rewarding jobs that they'll ever have.
0: Well, Gina, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy busy day to spend uh, almost over an hour with us, but more importantly, Gene, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country.
1: Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure to be with you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
0: This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Comptroller General Gene Dodaro, leader of the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How
2: can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented.
0: WFED Washington, WTOPFM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, FM HD2, Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions re-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.
1: is CB.